I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, where we're going to read our scripture reading for tonight, the first nine verses. 2 Peter chapter 3 can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,896. You know, the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The end is near. So many have said it. For centuries there have been innumerable theories as to when and how the world might end. Here are some highlights. At 960, Bernard of Thuringia, a German theologian, calculated 992 as the most likely year for the world's end. As the time approached, panic was widespread. German astrologer Johann Stoffler predicted an overwhelming flood on February 20th, 1524. Believers started constructing arcs. One man is said to have been trampled to death by a mob attempting to board his specially built vessel. When nothing happened, the calculations were revised and a new date given, 1588. That year also passed without any unusual rainfall. Solomon Eccles was jailed in London's Bridewell Prison in 1665 for striding through Smithfield Market carrying a pan of blazing sulfur on his head and proclaiming doom and destruction. Although the end of the world did not follow, the great fire of London did in 1666. Coincidence? After studying both the Bible and the mystical messages of the Great Pyramid in 1874, Charles Taze Russell, founder of the sect that became the Jehovah's Witnesses, concluded that the second coming had already taken place. 
He declared that people had 40 years or until 1914 to enter his faith or be destroyed. Later, he modified the date to very soon after 1914. Well, Charles Taze Russell, it's 2022. Herbert W. Armstrong, publisher of the magazine The Plain Truth, declared that January 7, 1972 was undoubtedly the date to watch. The utter failure of his prediction did not diminish his zeal. The 16th century seer Nostradamus is said to have favored 1999 as the year of a Martian invasion. While an 18th century French prophetess Jean Le Roger established the year 2000 as the definitive one. Remember Y2K? And of course, we all know Harold Camping, don't we? I will always remember that TV interview that Harold Camping had when they came to his house the day that he said the world would end and he opens the door in his robe, grabs his newspaper. Anything to say, Mr. Camping? No. <laughs> but here we have in this conversation the switching from the discussion about heresies in the scriptures to the discussion of end times, the day of the Lord. In fact, what's interesting about Peter's transition here is that many heretical leaders and teachers base most of their teaching on what they believe about the end times. And so, Peter seems to be making a connection here between false teachers and uh, end time prophecy, end time calculations, end time uh, discussions about what the end will look like, when it's going to happen. Um, and so, in order to prepare his audience, in order to prepare his letter writers, he wants to give a positive explanation for what we should be looking for when it concerns uh, the day of the Lord, the end times, right? So our theme tonight is kind of a universal theme in scriptures, but it applies to the topic of the end of the world. The way God has acted in the past shows that he is to be trusted with the future. The way God has acted in the past shows that he is to be trusted with the future. And Peter wants to do three things with the text tonight. He wants his readers to recall the word. That's verses 1 through 2. He wants his readers to remember the word. And that is verse 3 through 7. And he wants his readers to be reminded of God's patience. And that's verse 8 and 9. Uh, 8 and 8. 8 and 9. So let's look at this first point together, okay? 
Recall the word. Peter spent quite a bit of his letter um, hammering into this concept of false teachers. And so as he opens up this new topic, he wants to remind his audience that um, they are beloved. They are dear friends. That what he does in writing this is meant to be an encouragement, meant to be something that would lift them up, lift their spirits. Um, And he he mentions, uh, this is now my second letter to you. Now, um, we're not entirely sure if what he's referencing is 1 Peter. There are some letters that Paul wrote that he references in some of his letters that uh, God has not preserved for us in Scripture. But uh, one can guess, one can assume that what he's talking about here is the first letter uh, that he wrote, 1 Peter. And he says, I've written both of them as reminders to, and then this is his statement of uh, purpose, stimulate, stimulate you. Uh, to wholesome thinking. Uh, this is something that uh, makes me think of uh, what Paul wrote when he said, whatever is good, whatever is charitable, whatever is positive, whatever, these are the things you should dwell on. These are the things that you should think of, right? Uh, this is what Peter's saying. I've reminded you, uh, I since you wrote both of these letters to you to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. Um, and then he says, um, I want you to do a few things. I want you to recall the words um, spoken by the prophets. And so, Old Testament, right? That's what he's referencing here. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. And he says, I want you to, uh, I want you to uh, remind yourselves of the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so the apostolic teaching, um, which then is recorded... And preserve for us New Testament. So this is basically what he's saying. I want you to recall the word. The Old Testament word. The New Testament word. If you want anything to be your best defense against false teachers. If you want anything to be your best defense against uh, false views of the end times. That that would seek to manipulate you. Seek to, to gain something from you. Then your best weapon is to recall. The Word of God. Old Testament. New Testament. Go to the prophets. Study them. Dig yourself into the Word. See what the prophets say about the end times. See what the prophets say about the coming of the age. The end of this age. And the, end, and the beginning uh, of the new age. See what the prophets, see what the Word of God teaches about this thing. See what Jesus said about this. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say we should be looking for? Study these things. Know about these things. And so that when somebody comes and seeks to manipulate you by a false teaching, by a teaching about the end times, by a teaching about something else that is uh, incorrect, you'll say, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. That's why... And a lot of what Peter talked about when it came to the false teachers, he said that they were uh, taking advantage of the weak Christians, taking advantage of the Christians who were baby Christians, new Christians, because these are the Christians who haven't formulated a biblical worldview yet. These are Christians that haven't been saturated in the Word of God yet. They just heard the gospel and they believe it, and they're excited, and these people swoop in and uh, they lead them astray. And so he writes to his audience and he says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And this is the other thing I want you to do to stimulate yourself to wholesome thinking. I want you to consider 
the words spoken by the holy prophets in the Old Testament, and I want you to consider the commands given by our Lord Jesus Christ through the holy apostles. The Old Testament, the New Testament. Recall the word. Oh, no. Number two, remember the word. Verse three through seven. He continues though. First of all, he says, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own, own, own evil desires. So I think it's kind of funny that he says scoffers will come, and then his description of what they're going to be doing is scoffing. Scoffers are going to scoff, guys. Mockers are going to mock. But uh, nonetheless, uh, this is how he describes these scoffers. He says, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So they're going to scoff. They're going to pursue evil desires. Very much in line with what the false teachers do, right? Um, They pursue their own sinful flesh, their, their own evil desires. Um, And this is going to be a characterization of what they'll say. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Why should we believe you that that one day things will all change? They've always been the way that they are. They will say, where is this parousia, this coming? He promised, this advent, Right? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Um, everything, nothing's changed. Nothing, nothing dramatic, nothing drastic has changed. Everything just continues on as it has been. Uh, this is the same old train, same old move. Nothing's changed. And this is their characterization. This is their mockery of the biblical teaching. And what is the biblical teaching? The biblical teaching is what we read in Article um, uh, 38 of the Belgic Confession. Or was it 37? Yeah, there's no 38 articles of the Belgic Confession. There's only 37. The Belgic Confession of Faith talks about the last judgment, this belief that at the end of this age, Christ is going to come back. Everyone will be resurrected from the dead. Both the, the living and the dead will be transformed into, uh, into their eternal bodies. And they will stand before the great white throne. And they will hear um, their judgment, their case will, that, that will be made. And if you put faith and trust in Christ, then you enter into the kingdom. And if you have not, then you are cast into hell and eternal torment. This is the, the, the truth of the scriptures. Um, that there is going to be a reckoning one day. That things are not always going to be like this. Um, that that, that, that uh, time in the world is not a wheel. It's not a circular thing that just keeps going like this. Where there's no change, there's no flux. Things just start over, things just go like this. Why do you think that so many um, contrary um, religions... Are, are about this reincarnation, this circular idea that things just keep going around and around and around like this. And that's because the biblical worldview is linear. There's a beginning of creation and there is an end of this creation. There is an end game in mind. Right? 
But these scoffers, they're saying, nothing's changed. Things just go on like they've always gone on. So don't listen to this guy. And you know what? You know what? It's easy to fall into this camp. Because just like I read as an illustration for this sermon, how many people have said, the end of the world is coming. 88 reasons why the world will end in 1988. It's really easy to find those books at thrift stores. I mean, I don't think there's any better way to, to, to realize that whatever you just wrote about is completely pointless now. The, the, how many people have, have, have gone on the internet and said, the end of the world is coming. Look, it's, it's right upon us. And then... In fact, there is this debate about um, the New Testament um, and what Jesus said about um, his coming again and, and a lot of what the, the apostles and the disciples wrote in the New Testament about Christ's second coming. Um, that in the sense they felt that it was right upon them. That the way Jesus spoke, that it was right upon them. Um, and, and that um, and, and many, many people were, were expecting the, the world to end for Christ to come back within their generation because of the words that he said in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, all these words shall be fulfilled um, um, before this generation passes away, right? And so people mock even Christianity by saying, Jesus said that all these things would happen before he passed away. And I have theories. I, I have exegetical arguments for that. I, I believe he was talking about him coming in judgment in 70 AD uh, to Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Um, but, nonetheless, there were probably some disciples in Jesus' day who misunderstood that. And time came and went. And they thought, Jesus hasn't come back yet. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus went up into the clouds and then an angel came and told the disciples, what are you doing standing around? Go get busy for the kingdom of God. The way Jesus left is the same way he's going to come back. I mean, they thought Jesus was going to be resurrected and usher in the new kingdom. They asked him, Jesus, when will you return uh, this kingdom to the glory of David? And remember what Jesus said. He didn't say, that's not what I'm supposed to do. No, he said, it's not yours to know the time. So like I said, it's easy. It's easy for people to, um, to be jaded about this. Um, about the, the second coming of Christ. But nonetheless, that is the teaching of the Scriptures. And so what Peter wants to do is he wants to say, here's what the scoffers say, and here's what they don't get, right? What they don't get is that God's Word is powerful. And they say, they act like nothing's changed, but what they forget is that at one point in history, there was no world. 
there was no earth. There were no oceans. There were no continents. There was nothing. And God said, let there be light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's before Genesis 1-1? Only God. And so they say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it, sin, as it has since the beginning of creation? No. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Well, you know what they also forget? They forget... They forget about creation. They forget about the flood. That things didn't go on as normal. You think that people in Noah's day probably had the same kind of idea. Things just go on as normal, right? What does Jesus say about uh, the coming of the judgment of the flood? People were getting married and being given in marriage. They were going on like it was nothing, nothing was different. You think that everybody during Noah's day was walking around going, ah, the world's going to end. No, they're, they're just thinking it's another Tuesday. It's another Tuesday. And bam. The world is covered in water. They're drowning. Taking their last breaths as them and everyone they love and care about are dying because they did not listen to the righteous preaching of Noah and they forsook the way of God and the thoughts of their mind were evil all the time. And so Peter says, by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And so you don't, you scoffers don't understand that God's word is powerful. God's word is so powerful that it can create everything that we see and that we experience right now. God's word is so powerful that by, the, by his word, the entire world was covered in a flood of water because his judgment had come. And God's world is, word is so powerful that by the same word that created the heavens and the earth, by the same word that the flood waters came, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly. There will be a final judgment that will not be by water, but it will be by fire. And Peter will talk a little bit more about that later on in this passage. Um, that for, um, for those who are gods, for those who belong to God in Christ Jesus, um, and for this world, it was going to be a purifying fire that will burn up all the things that are bad and, and, and corrupt and sinful and part of the curse in this world and leave everything else that will remain. And so don't just recall the word. Don't just remember what God has said through the Old Testament prophets and through Jesus, his son. Also remember the powerful word of God that by his word creation stood firm. The heavens and the earth were created. By his word, the whole world at that time was condemned, judged in the flood. And by his same word, by that same powerful word, a fire is going to come that is future. Present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So, recall the word, remember the word. But also... 
You're reminded of God's faithfulness. Or not God's faithfulness, God's patience. Not that there's much difference between those two things. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. He wants to make sure that as he is talking about the scoffers, that um, as he's talking about these end days, which by the way, we're living in now. Uh, first of all, you must understand in verse 3 when it says that in the last days, scoffers will come. Peter's not talking about a future reality. He's talking about a now reality. Um, the last days include from Pentecost all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of this age. We're in the last days. We're last days people. Um, if you read the prophecy that um, Peter quoted from Joel in his Pentecost sermon, uh, that is a prophecy of the last days, of the day of the Lord. And Peter in that sermon proclaims that we're in the last days, the days in which the Spirit of God is poured out upon his people. And we're in the last days now. And so what Peter is saying is not just, you need to watch out for this. You need to look for this. He's saying, if you see scoffers scoffing, if you see people saying, Jesus isn't coming back, things have always been the way that they've always been, then what you need to know is that you're living in the last days. You're living in the last days. And this is the thing that you need to not forget. This is the thing that you need to remember as you live through these last days. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Um, now, Peter is not literally saying that, um, like dog years... For God, a day is like a thousand years in dog years or something like that. Like we say, dog years are, uh, for every one year, there's seven years for a dog, right? Um, Peter's not saying that. He's using a figure of speech. He's saying that time does not work in the same way for God. God is outside of time. All things are before him at once. He does not experience things in a linear fashion the way we do. And it's hard to even describe God's relation to time without using time markers. Like saying all things are before him at once in a moment. But it's not a moment because a moment denotes time. Or you could say, before creation ever was, all there was was God. But when you say before, you're saying something that's in relation to time. But this is what Peter wants his audience to know. This is what he wants the people who have received his letter to know. That as you experience these last days, as they seem to drag on, as they seem to take a while, and you keep thinking to yourself, when is Christ going to come back? When is Christ going to come to make all things right? When is Christ going to come to judge those who have persecuted us? When is Christ going to come to accomplish 
what he, called, what he came to do to renew the heavens and the earth, to make all things new and to renew us and to bring us and usher us in to the kingdom of God in its fullness. This is what we need to know. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Some understand slowness. God can't be slow because God is outside of time. And slowness denotes time, right? No. There is a purpose to the passing of time in these end days, in these last days. There's a purpose for the fact that there has been 2,000 years since Christ has come, lived, died, resurrected, ascended to sit at the right hand of God. There's a purpose to the prolonged nature of Christ's return and final judgment. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, often this verse is quoted in relation to the Arminian-Calvinist debate because it's a reference to um, God's desire um, to, for everyone to be saved, um, for everyone to come to repentance. Now, even though um, as Reformed Christians, as Calvinists, um, I personally can say, state, without, without any um, issue, that I do believe that God desires that all men come to repentance. I do believe uh, that God desires that all men turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, what is a mystery to me, and, and it will be, I think, until uh, the end of, of my life, until I can speak to Christ personally about this, is um, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to wrap my mind around how God can desire something that he does not decree. God can desire something that he does not um, make happen. He does not bring about. Um, the only thing that I can uh, say about that is that I do believe it is God's natural work to save, and it is his unnatural work to condemn or to judge. And that's a scriptural conviction. Um, I, I do believe it is more natural for him to be a God of mercy and grace and salvation than it is for him to be a God of wrath and judgment. Um, but I do believe that Paul makes a very clear statement in Romans chapter 9 that um, what if it is God's purpose um, that he would create vessels of wrath stored up for destruction so that he might reveal in the vessels of grace his characteristics of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of love, but that he might reveal in these vessels of wrath his uh, qualities, his uh, attributes of justice, of, of, of wrath. And so, um, even though this quote, this verse 9, he not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance is often used um, in arguments about Arminianism, and Calvinism, I, I don't think that it's appropriate here because really what Peter is saying is he's addressing to the people he's writing this letter to. He's patient with you. Who are the you? Believers. He's patient with you, the church. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And this is why 
Article 37 in the Belgian Confession of Faith says that we believe according to the word of God when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come and the number of the elect complete that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven corporally and visibly as he ascended with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Well, what is the Belgic Confession saying? It's saying what Reformed Christians, what Biblical Christians have believed for a long time. And that is the reason for God's prolonging the coming judgment. It's because God is still saving the elect. That there are people that Christ's blood has purchased on the cross that may not have been born yet. That may not Um, not even come into existence for generations. And God will not send His Son to wrap up all things and to end everything that we've experienced now until every single drop of His blood that purchased a person from tribes, peoples, nations, tongues is completed. And so you see now what Peter is saying here is meant to be a comfort for his audience. He's saying, you understand the reason why God has not come back yet is that God still has people to save in Jesus Christ. And as long as God waits, withholds his judgment, it is meant to bring people. It is his kindness that is meant to bring people to repentance. God could come now and judge, but he does not. And Christ does not return yet because Christ's elect, his sheep, have not all come to him. So be reminded of God's patience. Be reminded that for God, uh, he experiences time. He does not even, uh, he's outside of time. For, for him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And he's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Um, so don't be... <laughs> This is sort of a weird analogy, but when it comes to our relationship with God, don't be like the person who's sitting in the car waiting for the person that takes way too long to come out and get in the car. And you're honking your horn and you're saying, come on, we're ready to go. You've already put enough makeup on. Let's go. Don't be like that with God. Because God is not like that. God is purposely awaiting sending his son Christ back to judge the living and the dead until every single one of his elect have come to faith in Jesus. Where that number is filled up. And so the way God has acted in the past shows that he is to be trusted with the future. Um, the way that God has acted in the past through creation, the way that God has acted in the past through the flood, the way that God has acted in the past towards his people uh, shows us that we can trust him with the future. We can trust that he will be fulf- uh, faithful to fulfill his promises to us in the future. So uh, don't give up hope. Keep pressing on and know uh, that the day of the Lord is coming. Because God has promised us it will come. Um, But the reason why it doesn't come now is for a good reason. 
Um, it's for more people to come to Christ. Um, and may that, be, may that be something that ushers us on into uh, evangelism and speaking the gospel boldly. That the reason why we still have time in front of us, the reason why we still have years before us, if the Lord grant it, is so that we may be used by God um, as a means to bring others to faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And maybe not, um, maybe not waste that time. Maybe not take, not take advantage of that. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. And we thank you uh, that um, the way that you have acted in the past through your powerful word shows us that we can trust you to be faithful, to fulfill your promises to us in the future. That you can be trusted with our future. Um, the truth is we don't know the time or date of the ending of the world, but that you do tell us about what the, the last days will look like, what challenges we will face as Christians, and how we can remain faithful. So we pray, Lord, that we will be uh, faithful in waiting upon Christ our Lord to return, that, um, that we would get busy with the work that you have for us, that you've ordained for us, that we would share the love of Christ with others be used by you to bring others to faith in him before that coming day. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?